Here we come. Good morning. Good morning. Is this thing on? Oh, this isn't on. Good morning. There we go. Can we hear? Is the microphone working? Yes. Okay, anyone. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning, Sam. Thank you. Happy Valentine's Day. I guess we're a little um, slow and moving. Um, Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, February 14th, 2018. It is Valentine's Day, and um, it is a busy in the middle of flu season also, so the the hospital is bursting at the seams, and so we will appreciate for those who actually might need to step out early, but those who are leaving right after Grand Rounds to help facilitate discharges um, as we are, flu season is hit throughout the region. It's mostly hard hit on the adult side, and there's just nowhere for patients to go or other options uh, in the region. So um, as far as kudos are concerned, we recently have had some lots of good news, but um, towards the end of December, I haven't had a chance to share that we had a really very successful visit. CMS may be coming back in the next couple of days, so those of you who are in any units, be, be aware that CMS is probably coming back in the next couple of days. But we had a really successful visit in the midst of Joint Commission and CMS. The American College of Surgeons came and re-verified our uh, trauma center verification, and, and the pediatric trauma uh, team particularly came through with a very clean uh, assessment and a really good site visit. So uh, congrats to Reto and the team when you next see them. Uh, this morning, we have um, a really gracious fill-in um, for uh, Dr. Schulmeister was unable to present Grand Rounds this morning. Um, so Dr. Ralston is stepping in at the last minute. And, and most of us knew, know Sean as the uh, Chief of Hospital Medicine and Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs in the Department of Pediatrics and an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the Geisel School of Medicine. Um, but I'm not sure everybody quite appreciates the role nationally that Sean has as the Editor-in-Chief of Hospital Pediatrics, the first Editor-in-Chief of that journal, I believe, which is the, it's just the definitive um, journal in the field. She leads the uh, Academic Pediatric Association's Quality Scholars Program um, and really is recognized uh, nationally and internationally. I'm guessing this is a talk that's been delivered internationally and nationally. So, Sean, thanks for stepping in. Thank you, guys. Keith, Keith's right. This is um, a bit of a recycle. Uh, um, but I hope, but I did put some work into it uh, over the weekend um, as I agreed at Friday at 5 o'clock to give this talk. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, um, but so, so my goal is to try to have a little bit of fun with statistics. And I know those two things don't always go together, but I hope by the end of this, at least some of you who, um, who are, are not particularly motivated by the word statistics will at least um, have laughed a couple of times um, <laughs> during this. Um, so I hate, hate writing objectives. I have no idea why. It's like I'm allergic to objectives. Um, <laughs> and so I always put like official objectives and unofficial objectives, and then I only ever say the unofficial one. So my unofficial objective today is to remind you to be exceptionally skeptical when consuming the medical literature um, and not to bore you to death. Okay, so, um, uh, and then some of you may, may think that um, I use this title just so that I could cuss in public, um, uh, but, but I called it darn lies. Of course, you all know that the actual uh, uh, quote is lies, damn lies in statistics. And, uh, and, and so these days, because we have the internet, you, you can't attribute a quote without, uh, without actually trying to make sure that the person actually did say it or write it somewhere. And so when I was looking this up, you know, I was like, oh, this is a Mark Twain quote, right? Uh, um, and it turns out that Mark Twain says that it was a Benjamin Disraeli quote. But it turns out that Wikipedia says Benjamin Disraeli did not say it or write it anywhere either. So no one knows where this quote came from. Uh, Mark Twain wrote it down in the chapters from my autobiography, and um, this, this is what he wrote. Figures often beguile me, particularly when I have the arranging of them myself, uh, in which case the remark attributed to Disraeli would often apply with justice and force. There are three kinds of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. And, uh, 
uh, I, I think that's hilarious. Uh, on, on one level, people use it often to uh, say, you know, to suggest that people lie with statistics. You know, that you you, you know you sh you throw a bunch of numbers out there so people will believe you. On the other hand, um, you know, there's a popular use of this quote to suggest that when people are throwing a bunch of numbers out there, they're trying to lie to you. And <laughs> so I think by the end of uh, the end of this, um, you might see a little bit of truth in that. Um, okay, and then I ha the, the second part of my title is, um, uh, was, is most published research is false in pediatrics. And so I have to tell you a story um, about um, uh, uh, an interaction I had with a famous person, and I'm a total fangirl for this guy, who, if anyone knows who this is, uh, I'll give you five bucks. Oh, you not. You don't count. <laughs> If you've seen this talk before, you, or if you if you know if you know who who this is, but anyone any random person who doesn't know me well, uh, who knows who this guy with the big uh, Tom Selleck mustache is, uh, I'll uh, I'll give you money. Jim says he's from Stanford. He is from Stanford. Oh, I, I'm gonna I, I'm, I owe Jim five bucks because that's close enough. So this is. <laughs> yeah, and, and so this that, that, oh, it's so funny because I'm going to tell you the story, and that's, that conference was in February, and he's wearing this summer suit, and I'm like, dude, get a new suit. Uh, um, <laughs> but so this is John Ioannidis, um, uh, who is um, a very, very famous researcher to a very small number of people. Um, he's actually from Greece, but he's on faculty um, at, at Stanford right now, and he wrote a paper called Why Most Published Research is False. Um, and, and you can imagine that that might have caused a, 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 a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, a scandal. Uh, he was in the Atlantic. That's the picture. He does have another suit because he's wearing a blue suit in the Atlantic picture. Maybe he just has a blue jacket. I don't know. Uh, but I met him at a conference, and uh, I was so excited. You know, I was like, oh, let me hug you. And uh, yeah, I run up to him and asked to take a picture with him, and he was super gracious. And you can see that he let me take a picture with him and hug him, and it was very nice. Super nice person. And then I've actually done this to a few other people, and they haven't been as nice. So... <laughs> <laughs> Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have them on my phone, but they're like they're like kind of cringing away from me. And <laughs> so what John Ioannidis is famous for, he's actually he's actually was sort of a math prodigy. If you read the Atlantic article, you can read his whole story. Um, and um, and became a doctor, and then um, he you know he began looking at. Um, evidence synthesis, you know, meta-analysis. Begin looking at how um, the pattern of uh, what, what happens with early small positive studies, you know, people get excited about a, a, a therapy, they adopt a therapy, and then, you know, what happens as time goes on? Uh, he's applied a lot of complicated math that, frankly, I do not understand to, <laughs> to a lot of medical literature um, and, you know, and basically has decided that most of it's false. <laughs> um, and I think that, that that sounds a little bit like you know, an, uh, uh, someone being reactionary against evidence-based medicine, and that's not at all who, who he is. And the interesting thing about him is he's a huge proponent of evidence-based medicine, um, uh, but also um, a, a huge proponent of skepticism in interpreting the, the medical literature. And um, my personal hero, um, this is a, um, from, you know, actually the paper, you know, that sort of demonstrates mathematically, you know, the, the pattern of, um, of what happens with, um, with, with literature when it's underpowered and, and, and our propensity towards publication bias, towards or, or publication of small, underpowered, positive <laughs> studies. Um, it is very hard to understand. He actually put it all in a, in a commentary, which is much easier to understand. And this is, um, this is the commentary that, if, you, if you'd like to read it, it's called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. And I just want to throw this out there because we're going to come back to some of these things. And we're going to look at some of uh, examples of some of the things he points out in the pediatric literature. Um, there's only three examples, so it's not going to be that bad. Uh, <laughs> and I promise there's almost no math in this. Um, there's, only, there's only one slide with a tiny bit of math in the whole thing. Um, so, but, but what he points out is that um, uh, research findings are less likely to be true when the studies conducted in the field are smaller, when effect sizes are smaller, when there's a greater number and lesser pre-selection of tested relationships, and when there's greater flexibility in designs, definitions, and outcomes, and analytic models. And I'm, we're, we're, we're going to look specifically at some examples of these things. 
So we're going to start with hypertonic saline, and I'm going to apologize ahead of time for, for all of the examples coming from the bronchiolitis literature. This is not a talk about bronchiolitis. You don't even need to know what bronchiolitis is or care at all. Um, uh, so, so it just happens that this is the literature that I know very well because it's the literature I've done my research in, um, but the point of this isn't bronchiolitis, so please don't, don't let your eyes glaze over and get bored. Um, so I call this hypertonic saline a tale of woe. And uh, the reason is going to become clear. So um, back in the good old days, um, by which I mean 2010, uh, <laughs> there, there, there were very few studies um, on this particular therapy for, for bronchiolitis. You know, being a hospitalist, bronchiolitis matters a lot to me because there's so many children admitted with viral lower respiratory tract illness. Um, and, uh, and, and so um, sometimes I joke that we call it the disease which shall not be named um, uh, the, 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 with the Harry Potter reference um, all winter long. And interestingly, in 2010, there was a meta-analysis of the three available studies. And um, it, this looked like a promising therapy. You know, uh, this, this looked, um, I, wish, I wish I had my glasses and I could read my slide, but I'm going to have to look over. <laughs> so look like hypertonic, what this is telling us is, you know, about 200 patients have been studied, and it looks like hypertonic saline in inpatients might decrease the hospital length of stay by about a day. You know, that, that was pretty exciting. You know, um, this is the, you know, eight years ago and a lot of interest in this therapy because there's never been anything studied clinically in bronchiolitis that looked like it was going to decrease hospitalization by a day. You know, this was, this is a huge effect size, enormous, you know, by, uh, by, by, by most standards. Most other therapies, even early on, you know, might have had a half a day length of stay, you know, uh, and, and, and all of those evaporated with time. So this caused a huge amount of excitement. Um, and and I'm, I'm telling you this um, not because this is a good paper, but just to convince you that I really believed this therapy might work. So um, back in 2010, same year, I wrote a, um, a paper about this therapy that was, you know, moderately enthusiastic about the potential. So, you know, uh, again, I was, I was invested in, in this therapy. Uh, this is just to hopefully lend credibility to, to what's going to come next. Uh, 2013, a few more studies were done. So you saw the first three studies, you know, and, 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 and remember that those were, uh, were all positive studies, but small and underpowered. So if you go back, you can see that the, well, you can't really see it very well, but both, um, two of the studies, the confidence intervals crossed the null. So only one of them was a positive study, and um, two were underpowered, you know, essentially. So let's look, let's look at 2013. We've doubled the sample size, you know, in our meta-analysis, and we have an even a larger effect size, uh, you know, so more than a day. Uh, you know, so you, you, you look at that diamond, that's our summary effect size. And wow, this is like amazing. This is completely amazing. You know, when we've more than doubled our sample size, best thing since sliced bread, right? 2013, super excited. Everybody in the hospital medicine community is talking about hypertonic saline and how th this is going to, you know, this is the, the cure for bronchiolitis. You know, not, not the cure, obviously, and uh, so I found this on the internet, the sliced bread is overrated. <laughs> you, you, you can see where this is going. So because there was so much interest, you know, you started with six studies, and you can see we more than doubled that um, from 2013 to 2015. This is only two years, you know. So 2013, people got incredibly interested in the topic. Many, many trials were probably already ongoing at the time uh, of, of that meta-analysis. And boom, there you go. Tons of studies. Um, what happened? What, what actually happened here? Well, some bad things happened, actually, when you look closely at this, at this meta-analysis. This is the 2013, and that's the 2015, side by side. And um, I've, I've um, have, um, handily circled the things that you should pay attention to, um, but, uh, but also wrote them out. <laughs> so the weighted mean difference, you know, the effect size on length of stay, went from over you know, 1.15 days to 0.45 days. So it's essentially doubling the sample size halved the effect size. You know, people got interested and began to study it, and the effect size is beginning to evaporate. What else happened here? 
uh, um, the, the I squared, you know, which we're going to actually talk about a, a bit, went from 30% to 82%. And I'm going to explain what that is. So, so what, what is that I squared thingy? Um, so I squared is what's called the inconsistency index. And it's a measure. Um, so the formal definition is um, uh, the percentage of the variability in effect estimates above which that expected due to chance. What, what this means, and I'm, gonna, and I'm not really a big fan of, uh, of um, formulas or anything, so I'm trying to leave them out. You know, what, what, the, what the I squared indicates is whether these studies come from populations that would be appropriate to combine. Are you studying the same thing? That's sort of the question the I squared is intended to ask. There are several other ways to ask this question statistically, and all of the answers in the 2015 meta are, are, are no. So Regardless of, of, of what it's intended to be, I'll give you a guide to it. In, in general, when you show up you know, the first day to read a meta-analysis, people will tell you, eh, if it's more than 50%, you should worry. If it's less than 50%, you probably don't need to worry. Uh, you know, in terms of inconsistency. But th this is Cochrane's guide, which um, I, I always find funny because 0 to 40% might not be important, but 30 to 60% may represent moderate heterogeneity. Wait. I don't get that because the, there's a 40 to 60% in there that <laughs> fall into the same category. And you can see that that happens across. So the point of that is that actually um, it's not entirely canon, you know, um, how, to in, how to interpret this. Um, but that said, I can tell you that 82% is huge. You know, that's, that's like um, a big red alarm bell attached to your paper that says, whoo, 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 something's, something's not right here. Something's just not right here. So how does this all work? You know, how does meta-analysis work? You know, what, 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 do, what, what do people do or what does the program do when um, you plug all the stuff into it? You know, um, and, and so I've circled the, the weights because what all meta-analysis is is a weighted summary of the available evidence. That's all it is. But it's not a weight based on study size alone. Um, and that's the thing that people often get wrong. People, like when you think about meta-analysis or when people sort of come and approach um, um, evidence synthesis, which is a fantastic thing to do despite the fact that um, I'm going to criticize the heck out of it um, for, for the next 10 minutes. Uh, it's not weighting based on, solely on study size. It's actually weighting based on um, how well we think that study has captured the population. So it's weighting based on um, variance. You, you know, so, so study weights here are the inverse of the variance. And uh, again, I promised no, no math, so we got pictures. <laughs> what's, the, what's the study variance? You know, you know that you know, every study you know, gets presented, every study population gets presented with a mean. You know, and, and then you can think of meta-analysis as a mean of means. Um, you know, but it's a weighted mean of means, and it's not weighted on sample size, as we've said. It's weighted on variance. So what's the variance? Var um, the, the, the variance is, um, uh, you know, a measure of dispersion, you know, of, of each value within the sample from the mean. And so what you, just to, to understand it a little bit better, you can see that this, this is a picture of two samples which have the same mean but a very different variance. You know, so the, the blue study is widely spread out from the mean, and the red study is very narrow. So if you were, if you were going back to the concept of, of weighting in meta-analysis, the red study um, might have a smaller number of patients but would actually get the same weight as the blue study, which might have twice or three times as many patients. And I want you to point, I want you to see that. Sorry, I keep clicking and I should stop. I want you to see that in this sample. I want you to see that these studies are all fairly nearly equally weighted. You know, you can go look up and down and you see that most of the studies have some form of weighting five, six, seven, eight percent. But then if you look over at the ends, you know, and you don't get the whole study in, you, you, you know, you have to you have to look at N1 or N2. You can see that these studies, you know, have treatment arms, some with 167, you know, patients in them, and some with as few as 21 patients in them, and yet they have the same weight. And this is an important point to understand um, when you're sort of looking at meta-analysis and looking at why there might be some problems that develop later on. Um, uh, you know, this uh, it, it will come back to haunt us, you know. So let's take just a quick visual to try to understand, to try to also understand why why there might be problems in combining studies. 
This is that same meta-analysis from 2015, the one with the problem with heterogeneity, the one that says, that, that gives us the signal, hey, you shouldn't be paying it, you shouldn't be combining these things together. You know, one of the things that people will teach you to do when you, be, when you look at a forest plot, you know, it, it is actually, you know, just visually examine uh, where the studies lie. Well, you've got the dotted line there, which is the summary statistic. You know, this is, this is what the purported treatment effect is you know, from all of these studies, and that's the 0.45 or yeah, whatever it is, you know, what, what, we, what we'd hope to see if this is really capturing the sample is um, each of the study's confidence intervals in some way crossing that, that summary statistic, you know, I indicating that this all comes from the same sample and it's appropriate, you know, um, you know, maybe we've got a big variance like the blue sample, but it's appropriate to put them together. And so what I've circled is just two examples in this, and there are more if you look, where that's not true. You know, um, so you see that um, Tunison uh, is actually a negative study, you know, which falls outside of, of what we expect. And then the two studies by Lowe are a positive study, which falls outside. Yeah. yeah. Sean, I'm used to the little squares in the middle of each line being different. Weighted. Sizes, yeah. So, so that, that's just a, it's, it, I mean, it's just a function of the program. So um, the, that, that's, that's a study weighting for sample. If you, if you have the sample up there, you know, you can, you can see it visually. They, they made the choice not to do that in this particular case. Um, what's interesting is sometimes that gives you a false perception of, um, of, uh, of the weighting because it's a, that, that size is weighted for sample size. But if you look to the weight in the meta-analysis, that's not weighted for the weight given the meta-analysis, you know, which was the, the, the problem that I was explaining because the weighting is on variance. The, you know, and, and not on sample size. And that's the thing, I think that's the chief thing that people don't understand, you know. Okay, uh, um, so, so, so you saw that, and then, and, and then you, you, saw, you saw a sort of 80% um, as the heterogeneity, and you know there's a problem, but what, what do you do with it? You know, what, 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 do you, what are you supposed to do with this? Are you supposed to, so should we just take that meta-analysis and say, okay, well, it looked like hypertonic sailing was gonna take a day off of length of stay, but maybe not. Maybe it takes half a day off a of length of stay. Is half a day off of a hospital stay a bad thing? Um, no, right? I mean, a lot of us would be excited about it. What is the measure of length of stay in these studies? Is it hours? Hours, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and, and you know, th this can get much more complicated, right? Are you really truly measuring, you know, the, the same outcome? And, and that's that's an important question. And, and I didn't mention this, but if you if you actually look, you know, um, you, you're going to notice, and, and you're going to notice it here because I've made you notice it, that some of these things are not like the others um, uh, in terms of in terms of length of stay. There's two studies that were really deviant, you know, they fall out, their confidence intervals don't cross the summary statistic, they fall outside, and look at the length of stay on those studies. Um, and this is length of stay in the control group, you know, presumably that's you know, a measure of what the length of stay is in your hospital. Um, six and seven days, and this is mild to moderate bronchiolitis. You know, um, so so this this you could see visually. You didn't you didn't need statistics. You didn't need math. You didn't need anything. You just look at that look at that forest plot and say, huh? Here's a forest plot that sh that's giving me a signal that it's wrong, and here's something I can just pick out in this forest plot that's obvious. So what we did here is pull those studies out and show you what this, what happens to the summary statistic without them in it. And you know that's that's up there, and you can see that basically. The treatment effect evaporates completely. You know, it's not quite not statistically significant, but it's close enough. You know, uh, and, and so, so you can see that the header, in, and then you can also see what the heterogeneity is in um, in, in in each of those samples. Um, all of a sudden, the heterogeneity goes. I think it's 40 percent. Um, I really should have brought my glasses, uh, <laughs> and um, and that's okay. You know, so suddenly all I've done is take two studies out of the sample and fix the problem. You know, uh, entirely. Okay, we're going to take a break. Because <laughs> I know that's a lot, and I know that that, 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 that's, that was a fairly uh, um, technical and, and heavy, uh, um, he heavy trip. We're going to come back to this. I want you to keep it in your mind, but, but I want to go into two, two more issues that are fun from the literature that are, that are a little bit easier to see and a little bit easier to understand before um, we finish up with hypertonic saline. Okay, so, so these two examples, and I picked these examples very intentionally because both studies are in the New England Journal of Medicine.
you know, I, I think that's a pretty good journal. Um, I can assure you that the journal I edit has um, a logarithmically lower um, uh, um, um, impact factor than the New England Journal of Medicine. But, but I, I hope that after just a very brief you know, um, tour through these, both of these studies, you're going to see that both studies have major problems, you know, um, you know, huge problems in how, in how they were presented in the New England Journal of Medicine. So let's start with this one. This is a study and I'm gonna, uh, um, from Scandinavia. Fantastic study. Uh, um, again, apologies that it comes from bronchiolitis, but it really isn't about bronchiolitis. The, um, the, this, is a, this is a very large study for pediatrics. You can see that, uh, and I put this up here just to be able um, you know, to walk you through it because it's a little bit complicated, but not, not terribly. So this is a study with four arms and about 100 patients per arm. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is a 400-patient study, which is fairly unusual in pediatrics. You know, we, we often see um, relatively small studies because it's exceptionally hard to enroll children in randomized trials. Um, you know, parents, you know, are, are, are a little bit um, cautious about randomized, and mo most patients are randomized, uh, are cautious about randomized trials, and parents in particular. So to get an enrollment rate of 20 to 30 percent of the patients you approach in a pediatric trial is, is, is exceptional. Then this, so this study managed to, to enroll over 400 patients. What they did, you know, was they randomized patients to epinephrine or racemic adrenaline in this case, because it's, uh, it's, it's Scandinavian and that's what they called it, same thing, uh, um, and um, placebo, and then different strategies. So you've got inpatients with bronchiolitis who get either epinephrine on a scheduled basis, placebo on a scheduled basis, epinephrine on a PRN basis, or placebo on a PRN basis. So that's basically the study setup. And then the outcomes are length of hospital stay or you know, the other proxy outcomes such as improvement in clinical scores or you know, general improvement. And um, you know, great study. You know, this this was sort of at the time um, only two studies of hospital linked to stay in epinephrine. You know, the, 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 it was a, an active treatment question, and um, you know, well done. You know, people had suggested. But that uh, you know th that one of the problems was you weren't using enough epinephrine, you weren't using it as frequently as you should, and those kind of things. So they designed the study to sort of answer this question definitively and powered it appropriately. You know, 400 patients. Here's what they found. So the top is inhaled um, epinephrine versus saline on the primary outcome, um, um, length of hospital stay. So this is just you know. Um, all, you know, so, so remember there were four treatment arms, and in one you got the epinephrine scheduled, and in one you got it PRN. So they pool epinephrine together, and they pool placebo together, and they look and they see, is there any treatment effect giving epinephrine in any way, shape, or form um, on hospital length to stay? Um, this is a survival curve, and the answer is no. Like, right, those two lines are together the whole way, and, the, and basically that is the definition of a negative curve. The bottom is on-demand versus fixed epinephrine. So now they've ignored the placebo arm, you know, uh, um, and they've gone down to, okay, I'm going to give you, ep I'm going to uh, compare epinephrine for, uh, given Q4 versus epinephrine given PRN. And what, what, what you have there is a slight improvement in length of stay on the patients who got PRN epinephrine. So who did not get the scheduled epinephrine. So you see what, what happened here. But let's just look at the conclusions of this study. In the treatment of acute bronchiolitis in infants, inhaled racemic adrenaline is not more effective than inhaled saline. We see that, right? That's the top, clear. That, that, you know, so this treatment does not work. That's what they're saying, right? However, <laughs> however, <laughs> the strategy of inhalation on demand appears to be superior to that of inhalation on a fixed schedule. Okay, let's process that momentarily. It doesn't work, but it works better if you use it less. <laughs> that is exactly what they're saying right there. Um, and this is, this is kind of horrific if when you really stop and think about it. So you know, you know, how, the, you know how everything, like, you get it, you, a trial comes out, and then all the little, you know, throwaway journals, and everybody picks it up, and they're like, oh, yeah. So you know how this got sold nationally? And it, went, it was everywhere. PRN epinephrine superior you know, treatment for bronchiolitis. 
you know, um, no, 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 <laughs> right? That's not what this study says, not at all. Uh, and this study says epinephrine doesn't work. <laughs> That's what this study says. <laughs> and you know what? If it doesn't work, stands to reason that if you use it less, it works less bad. <laughs> study drove me insane. So um, it did. It drove me absolutely insane. Did anybody notice, right? You know, so this is like um, if you're a total research geek or, you know, a, 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 per, a person who follows the medical literature. And in college, I wrote for the, the paper for the and I was on the editorial board. So I was, I've always been following a follower of the letters to the editor. Um, so I obsessively follow the letters to the editor when there's a, a, an interesting study. So I thought, man, people are going to go crazy for this. This is, they're just going to be, this, this is not okay. So let's check the two letters to the editor that the New England Journal published. This is one, and you know, this is from a you know, research group in Cambridge. That's a pretty good place, right? You know, what do they say? They say, we wonder whether the authors could identify a subgroup of infants who had a better initial clinical response to adrenaline. <laughs> and whether these participants had better clinical outcomes than did the overall population study. Yeah, so, so no, they don't, this is not a criticism. This is, hey, we, we like your study, and we wonder maybe if you dug in a little harder, a little subgroup analysis, where you might find some, 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 the patients this worked in. All right, disappointing. Somebody else is going to be mad, right? All right. Because one of the main, this is, um, this is uh, from Spain, I think, um, uh, because one of the main objectives was to compare the clinical effectiveness of the two above approaches. The definition of on-demand should be more clearly delineated. <laughs> okay, no dice. Uh, <laughs> so, no, nobody, nobody complained at all. You know, uh, those were the only two letters to the editor. That, you know, uh, this study got a huge amount of press because it was a, when a 400 patient study is done in pediatrics, it tends to get you know, so, so, some attention. And uh, um, fairly, fairly disappointing. Um, uh, so you want another one? Uh, and, and, I'm, and, and I'm picking on the New England Journal because I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, don't, I don't think they're going to be stressed that I'm criticizing them. Um, so uh, here's another one. Just happens to be about epinephrine. You know, um, I, I actually have nothing against epinephrine and bronchiolitis. If you asked me what is the most likely to work medication um, in a synthesis of all of the evidence, I would tell you epinephrine. Um, I'm, uh, you know, so if you care about this at all from a clinical treatment side, I'll explain to you why later. But uh, the, you know, the, so, so I'm not picking on epinephrine. But this is another one that um, absolutely drove me insane. So it's epinephrine and dexamethasone, and I'm sure that those of you practicing clinical medicine at some point, um, uh, you know, sort of started to see every bronchiolytic getting dexamethasone. You know, at some point you were like, what is going on with this? Well, there, was, there were a couple of studies, and this was one of them that, that really did it. So the, the, this study, again, we're going to break it down a little bit easier. Another enormous study, huge amount of press. Um, uh, and, and, and also, I think it might be interesting to notice that these incredibly large you know, and often multicenter uh, clinical trials don't get done in the U.S. Um, you know, so first one was from Scandinavia. This one's from Canada. Uh, you know, the last large one in, uh, in, in was from France. You know, we, we, we don't fund this kind of sort of clinical research. Uh, this another really well, at least in uh, this population of patients. So great, great study, really, you know, um, large study. I think um, we got two, four, six, eight hundred, nearly eight hundred patients, you know, um, in, in this study. So uh, this is a little complicated, and it's important that you understand it because the point relates to the fact that there were so many questions being asked in this study. So what we have is we have patients, uh, and so the question is, is does epinephrine work, does dexamethasone work, or could it be that it's the combination of epinephrine and dex dexamethasone? That's, that's really the hypothesis that was driving this. And uh, um, so, so we've got patients coming with bronchiolitis to the emergency room, and they're given epinephrine and dexamethasone, or they're given epinephrine and a placebo, you know, to mimic dex dexamethasone, or they're given dexamethasone and a placebo inhalation to mimic epinephrine, or they're given double placebo. So double treatment, double placebo, and the combination in between. Then, then they are, for the next five days after that, given, you know, uh, um, potentially five more days of dexamethasone if they're in one of the dexamethasone arms, so epi plus dex or just dex, or given the placebo. Um, the epinephrine doesn't continue. 
you know, um, you know, at all. So the epinephrine, the inhalational epinephrine is only at the, the ER. Then we want to see whether these things have an effect on these things. Hospitalization choice at enrollment. So right then, do you get hospitalized? Hospitalization at seven days and hospitalization at 22 days. Um, don't, don't ask me why 22. I don't know. Three weeks, I guess. Uh, <laughs> okay, so you got that? It's complicated. Um, and let's notice one, two, three, one, two, three, one, nine hypothesis tests there uh, versus placebo. So you got nine statistical assessments of the potential of the hypothesis. And so what am I showing you? I'm showing you the outcomes. You know, um, and um, so we've got the point estimate and the confidence interval. Y you guys know enough to know that uh, basically the confidence interval, you know, if it crosses the null, that means the P is more than 0.05, you know, in, in this case. And so what you'll see is that there appears to be no effect. Confidence intervals cross the null for admission at the time of delivery of the medications. Um, I'm going to talk to you about the little red things in a minute. Uh, uh, it, it, and then, so everywhere you go, except for one place. So if you'll notice, oh, it just disappeared. How did that happen? Well, darn it. Um, I had a little circle that, that's on the part that you're supposed to notice, but I'm going to come over here and show you. So you can see that epi and dex at seven days for, has a confidence interval that doesn't cross the null, except for that little red tail. So then the question is, is what's that little red tail? And is it important? Well, well, they put it in there, right? I mean, it, if they put it in there, it should be important. Um, theoretically, it, it's important. So let's figure out what it is. <laughs> let's, let's ask what it is. So here's the results. In the unadjusted analysis, only the infants in the epinephrine and dexamethasone group were significantly less likely than those in the placebo group to be admitted by day seven. Um, and you can see the stats that we just saw visually. You know, I love visual representations more than numbers. However, with adjustment for multiple comparisons, this result was rendered insignificant. <laughs> so what are the conclusions of this study? You know, so they just said that their main finding was rendered insignificant. Yeah, okay, we'll talk a little more about that and whether that really means anything. But the conclusions, which follow right after the results, <laughs> are among infants with bronchiolitis treated in the emergency department, combined therapy with dexamethasone and epinephrine may significantly reduce hospital admissions. Oh, really? <laughs> Wait, so they pre, again, let's look at this. You know, there's only one subgroup, you know, day seven, you know, where, where this might have, and when they applied the pre-specified you know, statistical correction that they said they would do, their result evaporated. So this is a negative study, yet again. And yet the conclusions are that the therapy works. So, so let's talk about that. Let, you know, let's talk about it statistically, and then let's talk about it logically, because I think it bears, you know, it bears a discussion on both sides. The study had nine hypothesis tests. This is the only slide with math. Um, and I had to look this up, right? I don't just, like, off the top of my head have probability, and it's not even complicated. But what's the probability, um, you know, if you have nine hypothesis tests um, uh, th th that... The like, you know, we all know that if you test more than one hypothesis, um, the likelihood of finding a getting a type one error, you know, um, increases. So with nine hypotheses, the likelihood of a type one error is thirty seven percent. Thirty seven percent. So the, the, what this what this little piece of math tells you is that the likelihood that this is a positive finding, you know, the likelihood it's due to chance is thirty seven percent essentially. So now let's talk about plausibility, you know, biological plausibility for this. And then let's talk about whether anybody replicated this. Well, I can tell you that some people tried and they failed. A huge <laughs> surprise. And I can also tell you that I have a close friend who was on this study team. <laughs> and, and I got buttonholed because I was very skeptical. I got buttonholed by him and, you know, had to, and made to look at slides of cells, you know, explaining why epinephrine given at the, at hospitalization would upregulate, 
um, um, glucocorticoid receptors and how this was going to change everything. And I said, yeah, but David, still, why does it only change things at day seven and not, <laughs> and not at day 22 or not, you know, those kind of things. And so, you know, again, the biologic plausibility is pretty sketchy and it requires a 30-minute lecture with some pictures of cells for you to understand. <laughs> um, you know, this isn't biologically plausible, right? You know, why? I mean, maybe it is, you know, you know a, a tiny bit, but, uh, but it doesn't make clinical sense at all, does it? And, um, you know, a, a, two doses of epinephrine, you know, in the ER have an impact on hospitalization on, 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 at day seven. Yeah, um, it, so again, that, that's, you're skeptical of that. Again, it's also statistically a negative study. <laughs> um, and, and, and yet got sold as a positive study. So, again, I'm looking for the letters to the editor, right? I'm, like, excited. Man, people are going to hate this study. This study is terrible. So angry. I actually wrote a letter to the editor <laughs> on this study, and it did not get published. Uh, <laughs> it's hard. I've still yet to get a letter to the editor to the New England Journal accepted. Um, and I've written several. Uh, <laughs> So, so, but it, nobody noticed. No letters got published. Nobody cared. Um, and actually, pediatrics published a cost-effectiveness analysis of the strategy of epinephrine and dexamethasone in the emergency room, where they allowed the use of the unadjusted statistic. You know, which made this cost-effective. You know, this study is the straight-up CEA. Great methods, fabulous, but the baseline assumptions are wrong, you know, and, and you know, they're wrong. They're, they're sensitive to adjustment for multiple comparisons. Uh, um, and uh, ha hated this as well. Wrote a letter to the editor on this one, and it did get published, so very proud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, 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 but it's wrong. Okay, so, so you're saying whatever, adjustment for multiple comparisons is statistical mumbo-jumbo. Uh, you're, you're just angry. You know, um, but, and I get you. I, I do. I really do. But, you know, think about this. Patients got a dose of one per kilo of dex. These, these kids got one per kilo of dex in the ER and 0.6 per kilo for five more days. I hope that you understand that that is a crap load of dexamethasone <laughs> that these kids got, right? I mean, that is not um, a small amount of dexamethasone that these children got. Um, so don't you think we should um, hold people to a certain standard of proof before we, one, try this, two, assert that it's cost-effective, you know, right? I mean, th this, this just, um, I think, is a, is a travesty of justice. <laughs> um, and yet, you know, um, still, right, this is out there. It's in the medical literature. There's no retraction. There's no, and this is the New England Journal, the best journal, you know, in the, in the nation, you know, both of these two errors. Okay. So <laughs> this is my favorite baby. Uh, I love this baby. Uh, so, 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 so now that you are a little more skeptical of the literature, I hope, you know, uh, of the available trials, we're going back to hypertonic saline for the big finale. All right, we're back to some of these things are not like the others. This is the same set of studies, you know, um, um, from that meta-analysis. And, and so, and this is from a paper um, that, uh, that I did with one of our former residents and um, one of our former medical students, actually. Uh, and what, what we decided to do was look closely, you know, at this set of studies and say, are there hypotheses as to wh why there's a problem? You know, uh, again, I showed you that we just pulled out the studies, which were done in the same hospital in the same population by the same investigators that, that, that basically were driving it. But, you know, it's meta-analysis, right? I can't, I can't just decide I don't like those studies. You know, maybe I'm prejudiced against the Chinese. They were, they were both done in, in China. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, ultimately, the pinnacle of evidence is to combine all of the trials and not apply selectivity to them. So, so uh, you know, I have to have a better reason than I just don't like the Chinese. You know, so let's look at these. You know, what we noticed about China was that their hospitalization criteria seemed to be different than ours. You know, and they had very prolonged hospital stays. And if you read the study carefully, what it says is criteria for discharge in China is the patient has um, one day symptom free. Um, can you imagine one day keeping your patients in the hospital with bronchiolitis until they have one day symptom free? Um, if you don't know the, this clinical condition, the literature on the duration of illness for the clinical condition suggests that it's about a 14 day illness. You know? <laughs> so, you know, you tend to get admitted on, admitted on day four to five. You know, so can you imagine? Well, the Chinese were keeping them until, you know, one day. Uh, so that's very different um, clinical criteria than we have in the United States. So what we did is we decided to say, okay, let's take the U.S. 
a median length of stay, which was three days. You know, so, so the question then becomes, with a meta-analysis, if, you know, if I accept that this therapy might work in all, the entire population, is it going to work in my population in the U.S.? Um, so, so it makes sense to say, I only want to look at it when it's been studied in a population that has my length of stay for mild to moderate bronchiolitis. So that's three days in the U.S. And when we did that, this is what we got. Um, it actually doesn't work. It's, it, it, it may work. It may be a negative effect. If you see our summary statistic is on the wrong side of the null. <laughs> Um, also, what you'd notice, if you care, the um, heterogeneity in that group goes down. So those patients are more similar. They seem to be more similar. Um, then, then we said, hey, let's look at the three to six day, you know, the other studies. Some of these are European, um, uh, Israeli, uh, mostly European and Israeli. They have a slightly longer length of stay, you know, tend to have subsidized health care. People aren't pushed out the door very quickly. But again, you know, this group, heterogeneity goes away, and there's no treatment effect. You know, even in the longer length of stay. So, so what, you, what you conclude from that is the treatment effect is being driven entirely by this subset of patients. Um, isn't that interesting? And the only way to understand that, right, is going back to the very first lesson of how the weighting is done. It's not weighted by sample size, right? It's, uh, so each of these studies basically gets, in, the, in this statistical model, gets equal weight. You know, um, so, so, so we're treating each of these studies as if they contribute the same amount of useful information. And that may not be true. You know, well, I mean, I would assert that it's clearly not true. You know. But hey, maybe you don't like this analysis. Well, we did it another way, just for fun. Uh, um, and, and this is a little bit of a, you know, eh, kind of thing to, and I, and I love meta-analysis. I'm like a huge fan. But um, <laughs> so we also said, hey, what else could be going wrong in, in, this, in this subset of, uh, of studies? Well, maybe, uh, obviously, when you're doing a randomized trial, you assume that within the trial, randomization controls for, you know, uh, it, it, it prevents selection, right? Um, but when you're combining studies, you know, um, there actually may be imbalances in the population that happen, uh, you know, at the level of the, 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 um, th that are, that are maybe not affecting the results of a single study, but maybe affecting the results of, uh, of the co combination. And what we found actually that was in some subset of studies, they, when they, you know, every, you know, you randomize and you're not intentionally selecting, but sometimes the study, studies are imbalanced and maybe they're imbalanced on the number of children exposed to cigarette smoke or something. Well, what we found was that a large number of studies were actually imbalanced on the day of illness at presentation. So step back and, you know, um, and, and have a null hypothesis about bronchiolitis. You know, step back and say, hey, it's a self-limited disease. It's going to run its course, and nothing I do is going to change anything. Well, if, if you believe that, then the day, the day of illness that you present on it may actually matter. You know, um, you, so if you present on day five and you only have another you know, 10 days of illness or nine days of illness, that's different than presenting on day three and having another 12 days of illness. So you can see that the day of illness and presentation, if there's no therapy that works, may matter for the duration of illness. And, um, and what we found was an imbalance in the day of illness that favored the patients in the hypertonic saline. So essentially, you could hypothesize a hypertonic saline shortened length of stay, or presenting later in illness meant you were likely to have a shorter hospital stay if nothing was going to work. It's a little more complicated argument, but again, does the exact same thing as the, um, as the sh short length of stay versus long length of stay. You know, um, uh, you know, makes, the, makes the treatment effect go away, makes the inconsistency index go down, you know, everything. So this doesn't, this doesn't work, right? So how, how do treatment effects evaporate over time like this? You know, how, do, how does this happen? Why does this happen? What is, what is, what is John Ioannidis trying to say? Um, you know, I, want, I want to boil this down to sort of three concepts so that you sort of get um, what the criticism of sort of face value meta-analysis is. It, it, a lot of times it's publication bias. Um, you know, it's because um, early in the course, we want to know that something works. And, and I was right there. I showed you that in 2010, you know, uh, I, I was cheering on the sidelines for hypertonic saline. Um, you know, we, we want to do, publish, and read positive studies. I also showed you that the New England Journal really wants to do, publish, and read <laughs> positive studies, right? We took two negative, solidly negative studies and made them into positive studies. So, it, you know, there's, and, and, and that's just those examples, right? We could do this all day long, um, you know, finding positive studies all day long. It's human nature, you know, to, to, to want to do these things. 
Then we get what's been called regression to the mean, right? I mean, you know, you know, you measure something multiple times. Often you get an outlier early on, and you don't recognize that it was an outlier. You know, so people didn't recognize that probably the early attention that hypertonic saline got was because those trials were outliers. There were a bunch of other trials. People were doing leukotriene antagonists. People were doing everything. And none of those trials were very positive, so those things didn't get any attention. Hypertonic saline, couple of small trials with, who, were, who were clearly outliers, but they got attention, and they got, boom, this works. You know, um, of What happens you know, when the therapy doesn't work, multiple people begin to study it, and boom, that one day off length of stay goes to half a day, goes to nothing. You know, you know. And this happens over and over and over and over again with, um, with therapies, which are, as John Ioannidis taught us, you know, <laughs> with, the small, with small effect size, with small number of patient studies, and with um, essentially poor rigor you know, in study design, which is what we're working with. Um, and essentially, we have in, medicine, in clinical medicine a replicability crisis, kind of like you guys have probably read in the, the social sciences or in psychology. You know, people have these exciting findings um, you know, with one or two you know, experimental settings, and then we, 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 we make up these rules about how people think and about behavior, and then other investigators can't replicate them. Same thing in clinical medicine. You know, um, you know, we have these exciting findings that are actually outliers, you know, and not representative of the population mean, and we get excited about them. And that we really ha have insufficient attention to the differences in the study population and to the information size that's necessary to draw a conclusion. Um, and that's our next paper, but I'm not going to talk about it because it's way too technical. <laughs> uh, but, you, you know, believe it or not, uh, um, so... <laughs> we, we, you, you, don't you think, we published this, right? We made this criticism. We've learned our lesson on this therapy. No, we have not. <laughs> this just showed up December 21st. Uh, an, you know, another um, Cochrane meta-analysis on this, you know, few more studies, same subset, same question. Get, what do you think's happened? Well, the, the, the summary statistics moving a little closer to the null, you know, and the I squared still through the roof. And what's the conclusion? That this stuff works. This stuff works. Uh, that, this, this made me, this made my head explode, I have to tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh, and what's really interesting, this, this looks great, right? This looks like a ton of patients. You know, actually, no. You know, um, uh, the, the information size, the number of patients that you would need to draw a conclusion is actually not met under these assumptions. You know, uh, so, so, so it's just absolutely fascinating. And, oh, by the way, you remember that critique we made? Guess what? If you, if you read this Cochrane, they, 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 what you do in, in, in meta-analysis, you do a lot of things, but you, do, you call the sensitivity analysis. First thing you do is go all the way through and take one study out. And you see if taking one study out causes your, your results to change. Because if you take one study out, that's kind of a problem. You know, but I already showed you that if you take two studies out, which are actually the same study, they are these same investigators, these same hospital, the same patient population, you take those out, it evaporates. Guess what? This Cochrane that concludes that this therapy works does this. They do this <laughs> in, in what's called a sensitivity analysis. Um, so, so read it just for fun, or read the conclusions just for fun because it's funny. What they also take out a very small study that was incredibly negative because the, the, the length of stay is, is so short. But what they say is when we do this sensitivity analysis, same thing we did, and they're you know, obviously aware of, uh, that we published a criticism of their work. Um, so only one of their sensitivity analyses is able to reduce the heterogeneity to a moderate level, um, you know, so acceptable for a, com a combination. But the results were no longer statistically significant. So I wondered why there was a but there. <laughs> like very much wondered, right? So you, you take these studies out, you get a better result that, that's more statistically appropriate, but the results were no longer statistically significant. I think that should be and the results are no longer statistically significant. Um, and, and instead of, you know, of, of, of publishing that as part of your conclusions, you know, this doesn't appear anywhere except for in a tiny paragraph. And have you read a Cochrane? They're like, 195 pages, pages long, right? Like they're, you know, it takes forever to dig all the way through them. People really have a tendency to look at the at the abstract. So it's nowhere to be found in uh, tempering the conclusions. You know, the conclusions are this stuff works.
Yeah. So, so no, we have not learned anything. <laughs> uh, so let's recap for the end of this. Uh, and I, these are what I call the classic moves. Negative study sold as a positive study based on a secondary outcome. And we saw that, right? We, that's the epinephrine study. Totally negative study. But hey, you don't get in the New England Journal with a totally negative pediatric study. You, uh, you know, so, so what they, you find where you're positive and you sell that. And it's funny because I know those guys too, and they're super, they don't even understand that that's what happened. I mean, you know, they're Scandinavian, English second language. You know, no, no, they're super smart guys. They, they don't, you know, it's like people approach this with really, you know, serious good faith. Um, adjustment for multiple comparisons, pre-specified and completely ignored. You know, again, this, a personal friend of mine did that. <laughs> These are good people, good people doing, doing, you know, approaching things in good faith. And results are noted to be sensitive to exclusion or inclusion of studies that are major outlier and no caveats are made in the conclusions. Um, so you don't need to know a thing about statistics to find all of those mistakes, right? Not one single thing. All you got to do, you know, is is pay attention and hold people to account for the things they say they're going to do, you know. Um, and and you could and this is this is this, you, you could do this all day long, you know. And I, I think what you you know, and again, people aren't doing it on purpose or, or they're not they're not doing it um, in bad faith. We it's a human tendency to to want thing to see cause and effect. We can't stop seeing cause and effect. It's nearly impossible to stop seeing cause and effect. So it's my last, uh, my, my last baby. Love this baby. This baby, this baby is me, and I, 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 he's asking, can we please stop it with the false inferences of causality, please? Please. Um, so I, I find in the critical care literature that what happens is the primary outcome is, is negative, but the secondary outcome, which the study is not powered yes. <laughs> should only be a, hey, we should look at this more because we found it, but people take it in front of it. Yeah. So a lot of times the authors themselves are very cautious. Yeah. They're not saying that this is, but that we should look at it further. I'm wondering how often you think we are making type 2 errors, that we're missing uh, significance where it might be there because we are, because those very same problems, because we're having populations that we shouldn't be comparing um, I find that that would be really, I find that um, it seems harder to, to evaluate. I agree, and, um, and I think that's a, a, huge, a huge issue. You know, type 2 error being that we haven't studied enough patients to find a smaller treatment effect. So the cure for that, right, is to pre-specify a minimum acceptable treatment effect. So, so let's say you want to study, um, you know, uh, you know the, the, this is our next paper that we're working on. I was really concerned with this question. You know, the adequate information size to draw definitive conclusions, um, both for type 1, and I think, you know, we tend to make more type 1 errors because of publication bias, but we are making type 2 errors as well. Because the question is, is how, uh, you know, come up with the number of patients you need to study to say this doesn't work. Um, so for something like hypertonic saline, you know, in bronchiolitis in the emergency room, you know, how, how big of a treatment effect um, you know, or how, how small of a treatment effect would you be willing to blow off? You know, um, and, and I think that that's a lot harder, and that requires sort of the subject, subjective. It would would a ten percent absolute reduction in hosp in risk of getting admitted to the hospital be worth it or not? And you know, the Europeans are a lot better at doing this because you know they look at cost and you know cost of therapy and cost of those kind of things. Something like hypertonic saline, cheap, relatively safe. You know, you you can go to a much smaller treatment effect. But take dexamethasone, on the other hand, you know, at massive doses for a prolonged period of time, you know, that's got to have a safety concern to it. And you, 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 you're going to need to see something, you know, for that. People can't put numbers on, my baby was super irritable and had high blood pressure for five days, because there may not be any cost. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, you as a parent, would consider that cost. It's also hard in critical care medicine, because if you're talking about mortality or loss of neurologic function, you would take a very, very small treatment, yeah. right? Because, you know, you save one human, right? It, that feels more like it would be important. And, you don't and, and no, that's the reason to throw the kitchen sink at patients who are dying versus not so much, you know. I think the problem in medicine is we don't do a very good job of being clear about those choices. And, and when we're making one choice because it's a last-ditch effort and when we, what, what we should do for the average patient or the regular patient. Well, could you say something about um, teaching us about this stuff? Um, you know, when is the right time, or rather, has anybody studied, when is the right time to teach us this? We do a lot of work with medical students on yeah. statistics and the evidence basis of, of medicine. 
I think we do some with residents, and we do very little with practicing physicians. <laughs> now, has anybody studied what is the right time to teach us how to examine the evidence? I, I have a really strong feeling about this, and I feel that, uh, that, that actually we should be talking to faculty about this, much less than students or residents. I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you a story. Um, so I was an English major. And I, I, didn't take, I didn't take calculus until I got accepted to medical school because I was so mathematically non-inclined, right? I mean I, I, I mean, I was afraid of math. Hated statistics in med school. Absolutely hated it, you know. And, um, and, and to learn statistics, I had to learn it from a guy who taught it verbally. Like, I don't learn, you know, through, through formulas and those kind of things. So, but I'll tell you why, I mean, what got me motivated by it. Clinical research. You know, like actually, you know, experience with the patient, experience with doing clinical research, and experience doing evidence synthesis that was meaningful to my patient population. That'll motivate you. You'll spend your weekends learning statistical programs. Um, but, but as a med student, no way. You know, I mean, I had no concept of how this might. Same thing with quality improvement. You know, I hated it, thought it was ridiculous, you know, as a med student, or I'd never heard of it as a med student. As a resident, I was like, I don't need a pathway to manage asthma. You know? <laughs> and then, you know, as I became a grown up and I saw error and I saw waste, I cared a lot more. So um, I would spend a lot more time educating physicians, you know, um, adult learners and people who have clinical experience to link it to. I mean, I, I, that's, I, I think it matters a lot more to us now than it did when we taught it. But just to put in, we actually have a scholarly activity curriculum that does a lot of this, whether we do it well or not, but we talk about the analysis of primary literature. And um, I think if you read upcoming physicians to be a little bit skeptical. Hopefully that will go into their faculty. I mean, I'll tell you what, what I'm speaking for is to study this. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, this is, this is fortuitous, though, that Sean was at a 5 o'clock invitation on Friday so that we could get exposed mm -hmm. to it and continue the conversation. But it is 9.01, so I don't have to let us depart and discuss this.